Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. Welcome back. Now we are on episode three of our lifetime journey with wands. And this episode starts in Seattle. To recap, we talked about Lakewood. We talked about Ellensburg. Today is Seattle. So, Mike, welcome back. Hey. 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 How you doing? How you doing? Good. We're doing sound, well. So sounding sounding good. Sounding good. Yes, yes. Sounding good. Yes, yes, no static like last week. Okay. So let's start with Tower Records. Tower Records, 4420 something. I think it's 4421 University Avenue, right in the middle of the Ave, University District, Seattle, Washington, right across the street from University Bookstore. Yep. I started working there. I got that job two weeks after I moved to Seattle. Started at probably, uh, I, I believe I started at four sixty an hour as a clerk. I know, right? <laughs> Slave wages. Oh. Slave wages. Well, back then. Yeah, a gallon of gas was like 75 cents. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. All right. So, but through Tower, you got to meet a lot of interesting people. Um, I had to meet some interesting people. I mean, the highlight for me still is in the summer of, so there's this band called Living Color. So I've been trying to imagine that sound and have been thinking of that sound for years. I just really didn't know how to express it, right? And so Vivid comes out and all of a sudden it's like, look in my eyes, what do you see? And I'm like, oh shit, that's what I wanted to do. Well, they were coming to Seattle and they were doing an in-store. So here I am standing with the guys and and you know we get introduced to him and I ended yeah my name's Michael yeah Mike blah 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 and I was looking at Vernon and I went I'm really pissed off at you guys he goes why I go you stole my sound I've been thinking of this sound for for years and Corey goes tough luck sucker <laughs> <laughs> so right after that we took the picture and um, God, I can't remember. Where the, it's on my Facebook somewhere. But anyway, I couldn't go to the show because they asked if I was going to be at the show. Calhoun and Scuzz and, you know, we chopped it up about, you know, old music and how how actually I think Vernon and Scuzz and I got into a discussion about the relationship between Sly and the Family Stone and Motown. How okay. people who get caught on Motown jump, you know, it's like, a stern cup of coffee is what it must call it. He goes, a stone cold steaming cup of coffee switching okay. from Motown to Slot and Family Stone. And so it was like, hey, are you going to come to the show? You should come to the show. And I said, I can't come to the show. Why? I have a gig. So, you know, uh, Vernon told me about the Black Rock Coalition and, and I, of course, signed up for it. And that was great. So the second album comes out. They're coming to town. I'm no longer working at Tower by this time, but I can. I still got my connections. Had a gig, couldn't go. So now it's like I've got an email, gotten on the email thing. Third album comes out. And so now we're talking like five years later, right? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't come to the show, so I went down. They were playing at the Paramount. And I went down and knocked on the door of the bus. 
Corey comes out. He goes, hey. And I'm going, can't you guys figure out when I'm playing and come to town another time? <laughs> and so he and I walked around for about 10 minutes chopping it up. And we've been we've been pretty good friends ever since. That's so, awesome. So much so that in 93, yeah, in 93, some of you Sonic fans will remember Big Smooth, Sam Perkins. Yes. He, yes, he had an event out at Golden Gardens, and it was my band, the Ghetto Monks, opening for Reverend Daddy Love, which was Corey Glover's band, who were opening for Erica Badu. So if you go That's back right. and if you go back and you hear that you look for uh Erica Badu's song Tyrone, it's a live I was yeah, that's a live shot that was at Golden Gardens. It was awesome. Okay. Anyway, anyway, two days before yeah, two days before that show, I'm standing at the old Northgate Theater, standing in line, and behind me I hear, is that Wansley? <laughs> I, I turn around and it's Corey. <laughs> they were staying at the hotel on the other side of the freeway and just happened to be coming to the movies. Okay. So you okay. said something earlier that I, I'm not uh, familiar with. What it was or is the Black Rock Coalition? So the Black Rock Coalition, at the time that Living Color came out, everybody was totally into butt rock. I mean, everybody was totally into butt rock. Um Guns N' Roses had already dropped, and the Seattle scene was just starting to pick up, just starting to get noticed. I mean, this is this all this all happened, I think, like three months before uh, Alice in Chains got signed, or before Soundgarden got signed. But um, in New York, Vernon had started this thing called the Black Rock Coalition, which was basically bands like Fishbone and and you know bands that had who were edgy, you know, who were mm -hmm. rock bands, but they were brothers. And mm -hmm. there was really, at the time, it was like nobody had heard of such a thing until Living Color. And so that was like, they, they garnered all sorts of respect because they could rock harder than most everybody. And then flip the script and, you know, be, become a soul band and then flip the script and be a funk band and then flip the script and be a jazz band. All this, you know, so it's like Pantera, not so much. They can't really do that. Maybe King's X, but no, not so much. So that was, you know, the, the coalition was basically, you know, it was uh, what you would get, you know, these days it would have been a Facebook group of, of black rockers all across the country. Gotcha. Okay. So you and, you and Corey ended up at the movies together. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the band. <laughs> uh, what movie did you see? Can't remember. I just know that they were playing. Or actually, no, this wasn't the time. This wasn't the Eric Kabadu thing. This was before the River Daddy Love was. This was like their first venture out, and it was off the first album. And they were playing at the OK Hotel. The OK Hotel. I so that was so that was cracking. Seeing them play at the OK Hotel, and I then the I think that was in the winter time, and then the following spring they came out and did uh, the Big Smooth Cool Out. That was in the summer. Yeah, big smooth cool out day. So what? So you mentioned the Ghetto Monks. What was the first band? See, well, to recap our last episode, Boys Will Be Boys moved to Seattle, but then disbanded. Yep. What came after Boys Will Be Boys for you as a band? So after Boys Will Be Boys, here I am working at Tower Records, 
And uh, I have tower was great because I usually worked three to midnight, five mm-hmm. days a week. Mm-hmm. So at midnight, lock the doors, straighten up all the records. You usually get out of there about 12, 20, 12, 30. What's to do at 12, 30 at night? Not much, except <laughs> go to a bar. <laughs> so depending on, you know, it, it, depending on what night it was, and for a while I was working Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, right? And Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, that was my schedule. Yeah, that was my schedule. So Tuesday and Wednesday off. So, you know, I had hung out at a bunch of clubs. I had discovered this one club called The Vogue. That's where, quote unquote, all the hip people went, right? And down at The Vogue, I met a guy who was really into records, found out that I worked at, at, at Tower, and we became pretty fast friends. His name was Michael Binky. And we talked about music and stuff like that. He plays guitar, and I told him I played bass and told him about, I told him the living color story and it was how much it pissed me off. And he goes, really? So he had a friend uh, named Damon, and we found a drummer. That was the hard part. We auditioned a couple of guys. Actually, it was just me, Damon, and Michael um, just jamming at his apartment. Um, just a, a, like he lived on Broadway back when it was cheap to live on Broadway before it became Bouget Schwan. And um, he said that he, he knew this guy who had lived in Seattle but then went to California and he's a really good drummer. And he came back. Turns out his name is Chris Friel. Chris Friel, look up the band Shadow. (laughs) What? You keep talking. Keep talking. Okay. So anyway, we get together and we figure out, you know, we could actually do something. And we, we started like messing with a couple of Motown tunes, one of which was Stevie Wonder. Haven't done nothing. And all of a sudden, here we are playing this song, and, and you know, and it was just coming together, and it was funky, but it was really edgy, like grungy, but it was funky. Pretty unbelievable. We rehearsed for a couple of weeks, learned like eight songs, and named ourselves Bag of Nasty. Bag of Nasty. Dun, dun, dun. Shut up. <laughs> Oh, it's funny. Chris lives. Chris is married. Lives on the other side of Shoreline. It, it just tickles me when I see him because he's like, if you didn't, if you didn't know him, he looks. You know, he would remind you of Sunny Jim. <laughs> remind you of a character that just walked off the 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 Mister Rogers show <laughs> or the three o'clock hour of Nickelodeon. Not even old enough to play on Save by the Bell. So. <laughs> So now this is about 93, and like I said, uh, I mean, I'd gotten out of Tower in 89, but we started jamming probably 90, and I, I, is that right? Yeah, I remember it was 93. Pretty sure. No. I have to remember, I, it, when you get old, it, math becomes a hard thing. So this must have been 88. 
Yes, it was 88 because I was going to be 27. And Michael, so I was still working at Tower. And Michael Damon, Chris, and I had a band. And um, I knew a guy, I met a guy who owned a bar not very far from Husky Stadium. It's called Bleachers. And I used to work there on off nights, um, just, you know, doing prep cook shit, making hot dogs and fries and stuff like that. Cause the guy, uh, who owned it was from Furcrest and that's, you know, how we became friends. Cause we talked about Tacoma all the time. So my birthday's coming up and I wanted to have a party. So he says, we'll have it here. And I say, okay, I'll, I'll get some bands to play. And so this is 88 and Bag of Nasty is going to play. That that would that that was going to be our, like our first show, and I was already hanging out with Mister Pearson in his new band, The Range Hoods, and we have become fast friends because I I kind of embarrassed him in Ellensburg. We forgot this ranch story. Oh, Boys Will Be Boys opened up for The Range Hoods at the ranch. I think it was the second time second time they'd been at the ranch. And we were so excited because we all loved Pearson and were Heats fans. So we did I Don't Like Your Face, Seminole classic Heat song. He hates it. Mm -hmm. Can't stand it. So I called him, you know, come on. You know, he comes up to sing the song. He forgot the second verse. He forgot the words to the second verse. And all of us are like in shock as we're trying to keep on playing. And then, you know, we, we pick it up and stuff like that. So he figures he's going to get me back. And it comes to the ranch hood set. And he goes, yeah, a funny thing happened on the way to the ranch. And he says, and so he calls me up on stage to do it with the hoods. And I didn't forget the words. Oh, and, and that's what started me sitting in with the hoods. All of a sudden, it's like, do you know this song? Do you know? Have love will travel. Do you know these? You know they could get rid of me easy by starting to play uh, honky tonk woman because I hated the Rolling Stones. Do you still hate the Rolling Stones? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried, but I just I just can't. <laughs> I just it just doesn't work for me. Yeah, I just can't. Uh, sorry, I, I, okay. I'm defective. So that was the Range Hoods <laughs> and Boy and uh, Bag and Nasty. Now, um, some other guys that I had met after you know leaving work at Tower and going downtown and hanging out at the Vogue were these scruffy guys, the four guys that lived together, and they used to have a house in Georgetown, but had moved into town. The lead singer lived off of East Lake, and they were kind of a goof. They were really kind of a cool thing. The drummer was insanely good. And the bass player was kind of guitar player was like, I mean, his hair was so long. You'd think that he was in warrant or something. It was long, but he played this cool white guitar rattlesnake thing. And the name of the band was Alice in Chains. Alice in Chains agreed to play at my, my 27th birthday party at Bleacher's Tavern. Why is it that I always think it's your 30th birthday party? I, all these years when I talk about my side of that story, mm -hmm. I think it's your 30th birthday party. Mm -mm. I feel better now. Good. About this. So thank you for correcting this mm -hmm. for me. My 30th birthday party was at the Owl and 
Lifering had started by then, and we'll, we'll go. We'll get to third. Yeah, the only reason I know that is because one of the the, the the person that I was seeing at the time bought me a life preserver that says Lifering on it for the band, and I still own it. So um, anyway, Alice and Chains were going to play after Bag and Nasty. Only one problem: Bag and Nasty played, and it's like eh, Sean's in the room, or no, 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 Lane is in the room and nobody else. So I'm like, dude, where's the band? Oh, Sean won't get out of the car. What do you mean he won't get out of the car? He said he doesn't want to play. So I go out around the corner and parked on a hill, pointing down to the right into the curb. Doors open, wide open, and in there is Sean Kenny with his feet on the ground and his head like this. And I'm like, dude, you're going to play, right? I don't want to fucking play. And I'm like, Sean, (laughs) Sean, it's Wands. Sean, hey, Wands, Wands, how's it going? You got to play. You said you were going to, oh, no, I'm not going to play. And Jerry's like, Jerry's laughing his ass off. Mike Starr can't do anything with him. And we're trying to talk to him. And it's like I had to reach down pick his head up and I'm like Sean look at me and he goes Wands (laughs) oh god so I talked to him for about 10 minutes and finally got him up and walked him down the hill and we we got in there and got them got them all set up and and they played and it was it was hilarious because Bag and Asty was playing this funky rock type stuff and then Nobody had really heard of grunge yet. Right. So when Alice started playing and we we die young, right? And I'm like, this is fucking cool. Look around and everybody, everybody at that time was like 35 to 45 at that time in the range hood crowd. And they're like, what the hell is what this? Is this? What is this? Right. So they got done with their set, and and then Sean, you know, halfway through tearing down his drums, <laughs> puked on the floor. It was awesome. But then the range had played, and we all danced, and everybody forgot about them. So my memory of that night is I don't think I got there to see your band. Nope. I think I got there. I think I got there while you were probably outside getting them to play. Yep. Because I'm not privy to any of that. I just remember Lane like wearing boxer shorts outside of his jeans or something. Yep. And I just, I couldn't get past that. I don't get it. Yeah. I was just like, I just couldn't move past that. What's the hoods on? What are the hoods going to be on? But to, to say, and I've always said all these years that Allison Chains played at my friend's 30th birthday party. Yeah. People, people go, what? 27. Yeah, that was also the first. That was the first day that I met my my first son. Okay, yes. that was, that's another interesting story. Right. right, tequila was my friend. It gave me courage. Okay, so, but people when they when they when they hear my version of the story, which was your thirtieth birthday, so we'll just I'll have to amend it for future years. But oh, they're like, yeah, it was Bleacher's Tavern and Allison Chains played his birthday, and they're like. Allison Chains? You mean 
The Alice in Chains? The, yeah. Like, Alice in Chains? Really? Really? And they're like, they're, I think, you know, I'll say, oh, my old college roommate, you know, he won a Grammy. Uh, what song? Uh, Thrift Shop. Oh, I think they're more impressed by the Alice in Chains story. Yeah. I mean, I think that's more like, wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, it depends on who you are. Everybody's different. But it was your birthday party. You know what I mean? Say, you know, that was cool. It, yeah. was, it was a fun night. But see, at the time, I mean, the music, the music, the music environment in Seattle had, was so not like it is. Well, you know, it was it was unpolluted by the business of music. And yeah. back then, it didn't matter what style of music you played. If you hung out at certain bars, you know, whether it be Hattie's Hat and Ballard or. Oh, jeez. I know, right? Um, or <laughs> the Frontier Room, or the Vogue, or down at Merchants, or Larry's Green Front, or um, the J and M. Usually, people didn't hang out at the J and M; they usually hung at the Central. But this was just before the college kids invaded Pioneer Square, and moved, that's right. why we all moved up to Belltown, and that's where the Vogue became like legend. Because yeah. it used to be Pioneer Square where all the drink, cheap drinks were, but then the college kids came in and started puffing out their chest and, you know, drinking too much in their pure lily white bloodstreams and getting loaded. And it's like, I'm going to beat you up. Well, it's a fire hydrant. I don't care. I don't like the color of it, but I'm going to kick its ass. They were hilarious. It was just so much fun to watch. So, um, so yeah, uh, between. 27 and 37 for me in Seattle was just really kind of interesting because like I said, I had just started seeing this woman and she had two girls and we were really starting to get serious. And I decided at 28 that I should, no, I decided later on after 27. Yeah, that was the fatal year. That was the year that I decided I need to settle down because all my other friends who were 28, 29 years old had girlfriends and I didn't have a girlfriend. So that was my girlfriend. Um, bag and ask. didn't last more than six months. Um, we kind of had, you know, there was a little bit of internal squabbling, but Chris had better offers and, you know, he was a better drummer and we couldn't really find a drummer like him. So it just kind of fell apart. Michael and Damon and I became, we still remained really good friends. Sadly, um, about five years, four years after, five years after that band uh, broke up, Michael um, had liver cancer and he passed away. And I was working, let's see, yeah, I, his brother and I are still pretty tight and we worked at Tower as well. So Michael worked in when, when video, when Tower video first started, that's why, that's where Michael and I met. He worked in the original Tower Video in the U District store. God, he worked there. Damon worked there. No, Damon didn't work there. Uh, Regan Hagar, who used to be in Malfunction. And those of you who know your Northwest Rock know that Malfunction was half of Pearl Jam. Yes. Correct. Malfunction, Green River, Pearl Jam. Well, Mookie Blaylock first. Mookie. <laughs> Mookie. That's how I met all those guys. 
paying it. They used that Regan's band. Regan's band after Green River shared a practice room with Mookie, and so that's how I met Jeff and Stony. And I tried to really hang out with Regan, Stony, and Jeff, right? Mm-hmm. But I couldn't really keep up because I had a girlfriend, and they kind of didn't. So, oh well. Choices. We all make choices. Not all of them are good. That's right. Sometimes. All right. So, so what yeah. came next? Musically, musically, um, I was just kind of hanging out, but I had met a guy. I had met a guy who was a drummer and he had a college band that needed a bass player. And the audition for the band was in Ocean Shores. They had a gig in Ocean Shores. Somehow, I, I, I think this might have been before the girlfriend because I can't imagine she'd ever let me go. Um, but I do remember going out there, Paul. His name was Paul. And that band turned into the Ghetto Monks. They used to be like a frat band. And we kind of graduated from the frat thing and started doing originals. Wait a minute. Is that right? Well, where's Life Ring at? I always get this mixed up. Did Life Ring come before Ghetto Monks? This is where I'm getting mixed up because it was it was Life Ring. Life Ring became before the Ghetto Monks. Yeah. Life Ring is what I'm talking about now because Paul was playing in a band with DP. Okay. DP and John Fisher. John Fisher okay. went on to be the bass player in a band called Peace. And DP and I... Somehow, I can't remember how we met Jeff Stone or David Nielsen, but we became a four-piece because those guys, it was like DP was a blues, blues, heavy metal guitar player. Jeff Stone mm-hmm. was a power rock sort of bluesy player. And David was this straight-ahead, four-on-the-floor drummer with great time. And then I was playing thumping funky bass right (laughs) and we were somewhere between living color and the red hot chili peppers and nobody really knew what to do with us. right yeah that's where i went this is where this is where the whole living yeah this is this yeah okay that's why because i hadn't met her yet but yeah boy that frat band i wish i could remember the name of that band Yeah. All right. There's flashes. There's brownouts everywhere. For those so, of you who don't know what brownouts are, brownouts are when you drink the brown liquor and then you pass out. And you have like gotcha. you know, you, you have this gobs of time that you don't remember anything. Those are called brownouts. Gotcha. <laughs> so how long was Life Ring around? Um Life Ring did its thing for about five years. Okay. Uh almost five years, more like four years. And you know, it was getting at the time, we were there. I mean, we were on the edge. We were right there. Mm-hmm. We were right there. I mean, we'd have our rehearsal uh, under kind of where the, the low bridge of West Seattle is to West Seattle. Right. Our rehearsal space was out there. Jeff had worked for Boeing, and he decided he was going to retire. He's, he was like, you know, he was the stellar aged man who had been working for the, So he had a pension and, and had socked away a lot of money. He bought a two. He, he bought a two-story 
piece of property. He bought the top of it and it was over. Um, I can't remember what kind of store it was, but it was adjacent to like a small little junkyard. Okay. And so he had, he had the top and he, that became the house of sound. And it was great. Cause it was out where, you know, every, the world like disappeared at like six 30. Right. There's nobody out there. Nobody. So you can make as much noise as you want anytime that you want at night. Anyway. Um, so life ring, we started getting opening gigs for bands that nobody knew. And everybody that we played for thought we were great. So, you know, trying to get, trying to get heard, you know, K, uh, the end 107.7 had kicked off and we were trying to get on. They had a, they had a local show every Sunday night. Well, I, I had graduated from tower and was now living now delivering hair products. So I was driving around every day and I'd listen to the radio and I was listening to the end because they were playing Twin Souls and, and really cool stuff, including Alice in Chains. They had a local show and it's like, you know, you hear Alice in Chains on the radio and sh- uh, machine, uh, uh, the human and uh, super suckers and Soundgarden and, Dinette set and you know, just all the bands of that day, right? And I wanted to get to know the Sunday night guy. His name's Marco Collins. So on Wednesdays, that was my day that I delivered downtown. So all, like probably two Wednesdays in a six-week period, I always showed up there with a promo pack. Tape of the band, picture, short little resume, drop it off for Marco. I'd go to live remotes. I'd talk to Marco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Marco never, we we never got any traction. I remember we played a show for, we played a show in front of what then was a band that was up and coming and they were like going to be the next thing. And we were playing at Sit and Spin. Do you remember Sit and Spin? I remember Sit and Spin. Sit and Spin, for those of you who don't know, was a combination rock club laundromat. So you could come there at like, five or six o'clock, do your laundry, bag it up, put it in your car, come in and watch rock music until two in the morning. Yep. It was cracking. It's just cracking. But uh, I can't remember whose show that we played there, but I remember we were on. I mean, we were just on. And people were starting to dig us. And it was like, you know, getting names for the mailing list and, and you know, 50 people signed up, which at the time was like, totally freaking out we never played a show like that ever again it was talked about oh that's right yeah 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 you're that you're for that life ring band yeah 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 i hear you guys are really good you're really good we should do a show well who books you blah 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 blah. go see blah 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 blah. never return the call laurie lefebvre laurie lefebvre Laurie Lefevre Productions. I remember trying to play. She is the one who got us in a lot of shows playing opening slots at what, what was then called the Color Box down in Pioneer Square. One block north of the J&M Cafe. And you had to go downstairs. And it, there's, a, there's a rug store there now. Or there used to be a rug store. I don't know what the hell's there now. It's been going out of business for the last yeah, time. Everything's out of business down in Planner Square. So anyway, um, 
we were trying to get traction and Lori was trying to book us. And then this new club opens up called rock candy. Yes. Rock candy was, uh, it was, a, a 700 seat or capacity, 700 person room, biggest room in Seattle besides the show box. And the show box was mainly doing, uh, nationals. Wasn't Parker's that big? Parker's was you, Parker's was bigger, but Parker's was outside of town, right? And yeah. so you know you could play at Parker's, but you better be playing for uh, you know playing for somebody who's known because the people who live downtown didn't have cars. That's true. Everybody took the bus or walked somewhere, right? And there was no Uber. There was no Uber, so you know you get out here, you get out to Shoreline to play Parker's, and you're playing to an empty room, dog. Because there's nobody mm. there, unless you're opening for the Ohio players or uh, Cool in the Gang or uh, Buddy, um, not Buddy Miles. Uh, well, Buddy Miles played there too. Uh, I'm thinking of the blues guitar player. I can't remember his name. Johnny Winter? No, no, no. The black one. He was. He, oh, um, BB King. BB King. But Johnny Winter played there a lot too. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I saw the time there. I saw Ohio players there. It was cracking. I think I, saw, I think I was at that time show. I think you were too. Yeah. That was, uh, yeah. Yeah. I was cracking. It's a car lot now. It's where Chuckles. Oh, wow. Okay. Chuckles okay, so, Beverly is on that, is, is there now. Oh, my gosh. So, anyway, uh, Rock Candy opened up, and that was, that was the, like the answer to everyone's prayers because that was the room to play if you wanted to get signed. That was the room to play. Okay. Alex played there once, they got a deal. And uh, actually, that was after the big three, Rock Candy opened up. And the big three were Soundgarden, Nirvana, Alice and James. Or I mean, no. Yeah. Big four. Okay. Pearl Jam, Alice yeah. and James, Soundgarden. Those guys. Jesus. I never got Soundgarden, even though Kim and I, Kim used Kim and I used to sit at the back bar on Thursday nights because they played really kick-ass. There was a kick-ass DJ, and he always played Thursday nights. They called it Rock Night, and invariably, I would always run into Kim Thale, and here's Kim sitting back in the back, and we're watching, and we're grooving. What's going on? I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> we laugh at people laugh at people who obviously weren't supposed to be there because they didn't have flannel they didn't have leather they didn't have long hair it's like what are they doing here it was amazing later on i'm going to ask you questions about your opinion of bands so we'll just keep moving forward on your bands okay How's that? so my bands so, uh, so life ring life ring started to run out of gas three years into it because it was really hard for us to get shows and you know at the time, it was hard to make a record. I mean, you had to go to a recording studio. And recording studios cost money, like real mm-hmm. money. Not like today where you can go and sit in a studio and a guy opens Pro Tools and it's 60, 80 bucks an hour. It, it was like 175 to, no, it was 90 to 200 and something dollars an hour, depending on what studio you went to. Right, which would be more like you know five hundred to seven fifty an hour nowadays, something like that. Yeah, it was big money, 
but you know the only way to get heard was to make you know you could you could you could go to play someplace like Avast, which was a small studio. You go to Jupiter, a small studio, and do a cassette, right? For mm-hmm. probably about the whole thing, recorded, mixed, mastered for probably a grand. But getting a grand back then, you know, you'd have to sell somebody's right. kid. I mean, you know, you 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 would have to play probably eight months of shows to come anywhere near a grand. And never mm-hmm. spent any of the money, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it was tough. We had gotten some deals and doing tapes, so we'd have little demo tapes. And one of the things that we did was right about the time uh, Desert Storm started. I remember when that started, I, I was just overtaken with it and wrote this lyric out and put together a song. And we were going to make it into a single. And it was going to, you know, if we would have had <laughs> number one, if I would have written it in a better key, number two, if we would have had any kind of business sense at all, number three, if we would have been able to attract anyone with any PR talent at all, then this song, All One People, would have gotten to be at least a good song for Seattle and Portland. I'm not saying it could have been a hit, but it was a great it was a great song that had a good message and a, you know, as they used to say on American Bandstand, it had a really good beat. You know what I mean? Really good beat. <laughs> so um, I still got tapes of that. All one people. We are all one people. And it was like, you know, it was, it was, it was a we are the world type song, but better. Okay. Better, but, but better, better, better. Hmm. You just like no one you know. You're simply skin and bones, and yet all you show is what comes between us. The stares, the silence, you emphasize the difference. Is this what God meant by love thy neighbor? Look through the rocket's red glare. You'll find desire to you'll find desire despair. And on either side the pair, there's human scheming. We're such the model role. Uh, we're nature's best mold, a disaster. Behold the human species. I thought that was a great. I thought that was a, so applicable today, isn't it? Kind of, yeah. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. So life ring kind of life ring busted busted. It's you know everything was done with life ring by ninety four ninety five, and I kind of wandered in the wasteland for a while. Boys will be boys. Got it back together and played a show in Ellensburg New Year's Eve, 94 going into 95. And the only reason I remember that is because that was the year that the Mariners caught fire. But I spent that new year's day in Ellensburg because I got into a fight with my girl and she left me there because I told her to leave. So she did. So I was stranded in Ellensburg with, with no car. Um, and then in uh, 97, I kind of gimped around for a little while. DP and I would hang out together, and he was he was going the blues route and was really getting into soul music. So he was playing blue-eyed soul music with some guys. And I thought about going that way, but I really didn't want to. I was still trying to figure out, you know, what was my purpose in life. What, you know, I wanted to do more original, more funky stuff. But I couldn't really find people that I wanted to play with. And I can't remember how I met the guys in the ghetto monks but they had all these songs and they were fully f- 
fully formed songs. They just really didn't have. They, they, I think I think they had like twelve songs already, and only three of them had lyrics. Okay. And the audition that I went to, I wrote lyrics on the spot. I wrote lyrics on the spot. Two bass hit. That was the first song that I wrote with them. Always thought playing ball was easy. Uh, always thought playing ball was easy until you came, took my game from pristine to greasy. Since that simple little twist of fate, production then fell off on my side of the plate. From the cool walking, sweet talking, lovely thing, precision movement, dynamite swing, an open invitation to step into the box, lift you like a feather, baby, and drop you like a rock. Two bass hit. Yep. A really cool band. Um, yeah, really cool band, bass player Ira Poe, who uh, we called BJ, and he was this little short Italian kind of looking guy, really kind of droopy, but he he was he was popping. He was a popping motherfucker. Yes, he was popping, popping motherfucker. Yes, and then Jim yes, he was. Jim Venn was um, a rock guitar player and i should say that with single mm-hmm. quotes because he was a rock guitar player a real one like you know you know he could play all the leonard skinner he could play all the acdc he could play all the warrant he could play all the triumph he could play yeah if it was a rock song he he had something to do with it okay um and he was a really good soloist right so it wasn't that he was just all playing all this just all this noise right he could actually like you know, and he could play like real good rhythm. Keyboard mm-hmm. player, um, Mike, who's nicknamed Kitchen. Why? Mm-hmm. He went to Wazoo and had a had a habit of always passing out in the kitchen. <laughs> that is a true story. <laughs> I always wondered. I never knew that. That's yeah. that's awesome. He always passed out. That's awesome. So that's why, you know, we call him Kitchen. And then Steve, uh, Steve Thomas was the drummer. And Steve was, uh, at the time, we really didn't know how good Steve really was. I'll say that up front. We really underestimated and, and at times took him for granted. He's really a drummer. But, you know, we were, I had had my experience with Life Ring and had been hanging out in the music realm of seattle for years now and it was like after seeing alice and pearl jam and Soundgarden and nirvana all get their shot and go away and become superstars right what was left here was you know there was the second tier players who got their thing um machine gun i forgot what second i can't remember. shotgun mama shotgun mama and Truly, and um, yeah, I can't even remember. Asked him to Julio. It's like he played in all the bands that were the second tier bands. That got mm-hmm. amazing guitar player, by the way, Tim to Julio. Um, so anyway, uh, Life Ring started getting a little bit of you know, we also wanted to make a record and it was still pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, but somehow Mike had, had met a guy who had a studio out in Issaquah. So we went out there, you know, big borrow steel 
glom together enough money that this guy would record us. And we actually, we actually recorded, you know, our, what was our first CD? It was actually, you, it was, you said life ring. Did you mean I'm, ghetto monks? I'm at the ghetto monks. Yeah. Ghetto monks. Oh, okay. We're at ghetto monks time. Yes. That was fun. I don't know about you guys, but it's like being in the studio is like the coolest thing ever. Being in the studio and putting stuff together so that it, you know it's out it's the coolest thing ever. For real. It's my happy place. Um okay. now when that record got done, we called it high stepping. And we tried to pass it out at shows and so on and so forth. Mike had a brother named Pat, and Pat was what we called our emotional spirit dancer. Yes. <laughs> the precursor to like a therapy dog. Sort of. If you think of if you think of uh What's that? What's the Rankin Roger and so and so? They had a guy that just danced on stage, or like the right. the time had uh, uh, Jerome. Jerome, right? right. That's right. who Dan was. That's in, or right. that's who Pat was, and his nickname Pat. was Mexico Dan. <laughs> Correct. So, is there a story there for Mex- the naming of Mexico Dan? I can't remember. Okay, but I was. Okay. I can't remember. All I know is that he was the one who took the record. <clears throat> he was really big into listening to sports radio and he took mm-hmm. it and dropped it off for um, Dave Grosby, who was on from noon to three in the afternoons. And then Mike Gastineau would come on at three and go from three to seven. Mm-hmm. Well, from three to four, they did a show called Gros with gas. Yes. One day they're just talking. He goes, now Mike, Gaston, I want you to listen to something. Friend, a friend of mine dropped me this, and I played it a couple of times, and I really, really like it. I want to see what you think of it. Right? So they played like two of the songs. Loved it. Talked us up. And, you know, this is AM 950. This is AM radio in, in drive time. That's like gold. Being on the radio at any time that it's commute time is a good thing. Um. <clears throat> got in touch with those guys and they were going to have uh, they were going to have a live event charity, a live charity event. And we were going to play in the lobby of their building, which would have been a great idea if it wouldn't have been in November. And the reason I say that is because if you're not from the Pacific Northwest, November is one of those months <clears throat> where, you know, the leaves can't wait to get off the trees People can't wait to be indoors because it's raining. Sometimes so, sideways. So kind of like January, February, March. <laughs> More like January, February. February. By the time it gets to March, you know, we get the little, it, it at least makes it to 50 degrees by March. Yeah. But <laughs> at high noon. But we just happened to, we just happened to be playing in the lobby of this business. It was a five-story building where the radio station was on the stormiest night of the year. I mean, thunder, lightning, 40-mile-an-hour winds downtown. It was mm-hmm. nuts. And here we are playing in this lobby. And 
you know, business buildings, they're usually made out of, you know, the big lobbies. Everything's mm-hmm. hard surface, you know, right. tile, plaster, glass. Glass. Well, mm-hmm. see, when you put, when you put, when you put vans in situations like that, it sounds like right. it was harsh. But they figured out a way to mic us, and and you know we were, we would play going into commercial all during the commercial, and then coming out of the commercial, right? Trying to get people to come down to the station and donate money. It's like almost no one came down there. It was like a it was like a death march. It was like a mm-hmm. it was like a three hour death march playing that that gig. But um, the band and the radio personalities became really good friends. And what that led to is they started using our music for their program. So five mm-hmm. days a week at three at three o'clock, they'd start playing ghetto monk music. And Gas asked, hey, maybe you could like redo the lyrics. And I said, oh yeah. So I started redoing the lyrics to some of the songs. And one of the ones that I did was that two bass hit song. Mm-hmm. And that became their lead song. And yeah. So if you, if you, if you were listening to AM 950 in the late nineties, you remember cross with gas. Oh, yep. Yep. We were, I know that guy. Yeah. We were, we were on <laughs> five days a week. It was amazing. Five days a week for an hour going into commercial, coming out, it was our music. And so that's how mm-hmm. we started trying to promo ourselves. And we thought it was going to be like really cool. But the, it, it, once again, nobody really had a good idea of how to market or promote or, you know, all the, all the, all the, all the first tier managers were out with Alice and chains and Soundgarden. you know, it's like Kelly Curtis and Susan silver and, all those guys were out. They were gone, right? Mm-hmm. So there wasn't really anybody to fill the void. Um, then Rock Candy closed, which is now Springfield Suites downtown. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of a sudden, it's like you know, there's really nowhere to play, and the and and the city uh, musically became a wasteland. And that camaraderie that I remember from when I first gotten here and was working at tower everybody hung out together that disappeared everybody started siloing up and that was the end of that there would be no more of that mm-hmm. so uh, the, we we thought you know if we could just put together another record and make it a little more polished it'd be great so um 98 we started recording our second record and finished it in 99 and it was called Pop Vulture. And we got some some legs out of it, but none of it led to what we wanted, which was like opening for semi-nationals and nationals in the clubs around town so we could build our fan base. Tried to get on college radio. We didn't really get very far because funk rock was now out. Grunge was out. So putting grunge with funk was all together now out. <laughs> and we hadn't really changed so uh i always liked i always liked you guys though i mean i still nobody knew what to do I, with us it seemed you know what i mean no I, I i get that too but i 
there was just always something there that I thought like, this is something's wrong. Like this shouldn't be this quiet of a place. Like there should be more people here. Right. I, I always thought, I always thought you guys, I, maybe it was the interpretive dance. No, nope. I don't know. I have no but, idea what it was, man. It didn't matter where we played. I was like a promo machine. I remember, you know, I'd spend hours at Kinko's making flyers and I'd drop them off because I delivered hair products. So I'm, where am I drop? I'm drop, putting them on the table at, at hair salons and whatnot, right? right? Hanging out at night, going to clubs, passing out. Yeah, this is going to be great. This is going to be great. Oh, you're opening? Okay, you're opening when? Saturday night? Cool. I'll get there early. Get there early. We get there to set up and we're all set up and sound check is over. There's nobody there. Yeah. You know, six, seven people there. Until, recently, until uh, like half an hour after we were done. By a, right. halfway, recently. Half, halfway through the next band set, because it used to be three bands, and halfway through the second band, all of a sudden people were coming out of everywhere. So, recently. Recently. Third time. Charm. You guys did a reunion show. Yes. Which bummed me out because... You did it in January of yeah. a year ago. It's been a year ago. Yeah. And so you didn't take into account that your friends on the east side would have to come over to the mountains. No. In January, there's snow. Yeah. So we didn't get to go to the show. So how was the show? Well, let me tell you everything gearing, getting up to the show. So okay. after that, after the pop, the pop vulture record, the band started splintering apart. Nothing was really happening. Steve was really unhappy and, because Steve was unhappy, that made Jim unhappy. And then Mike was kind of, I don't know. And BJ was like, out, oh, and I was like kind of pissed off at the other people. And then people were pissed off at me because I was like, you guys, I was, I felt like I was doing everything. Right. So we just kind of went our separate ways and said, Fine. which was not good because we had started work. We had finished that record by working with a producer. But once again, when there's no money, you can't, really promote and therefore you don't get shows and if you don't get shows you don't get paid and if you don't get paid you don't pay your producer so nobody made any money we put up money up front to finish the finish the record but i don't think anybody i don't think we ever made money back so okay. it took another 17 years to bury that hatchet with uh okay. with the folks that made the record so out of nowhere about two and a half years ago, Mike hits me up asking about, or Jim hits me up about, you know, maybe getting together and playing. And I'm like, I don't know. Why not? Well, we weren't sure if you'd want to do that. Why? Well, you know, thrift shop has happened now. So it's like, you know, it's years after thrift shop and I'm like, not really doing anything, <laughs> trying to figure out my, my place in the world after all of that. But, um, so we, had, we decided we were going to try to do, we were going to get together and, and we were going to, we were going to play a show after 23 years since our last show, we were going to, we were going to have a show and we mm -hmm. had, we decided to do it, um, at, uh, high dive, high dive, mm -hmm. high dive. Man, the rehearsals were amazing because we only had really a week. We had two weeks to rehearse, really. But mm -hmm. Steve, the drummer, lives in Alaska. So he could come down the week of the show 
and then, you know, practice for that week and then do the show. And then he was going to go back, you know? So, um, we had a friend of mine sit in and he did really well. Um, it was just really weird because it was like everybody, it, it's like they, it's like any other group, right? Everybody remembers how it used to feel. Everybody remembers how it used to sound and, and everybody grooves on it because, you know, it's a chemistry thing. So by the time Steve came, you know, we started playing through stuff and it was like, dude, this is like cracking. Steve had like practiced up a, he probably practiced five times more than anybody else in the band. He was all over it. And we came to do the show, did the sound check and everybody's all happy. And I was like, dude, before we, before we went on, the room was packed. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. First thing I said when we got on stage, where the hell you guys been? (laughs) You guys never came to any other shows. We got to wait 23 years for you guys to come to a show. (laughs) It was hilarious. But we played and uh, we came, we saw, we all had fun. We kicked ass. Everybody says we sounded great. I felt great. Uh, Jim felt great. BJ was just over the moon. Mexico and his little guitar. He, you know, it was it was just like old times. Did you guys record that? Uh, there are there. It was filmed in various incarnations, but a formal recording was not made because we didn't play it the triple door. See, if we would have played it the triple door, it would have been a CD mm-hmm. because they have those kind of facilities. But no, we just, you know, it was like a one and done type of thing. And it was really crazy fun. And poof. Any chance you guys might do it again? Never say never. I never thought that band would get back together. Yeah, you guys were a lot of fun. Yeah. That was a fun band. Yeah. Jim and Steve and, uh, yeah, Steve's, Steve's a hard ass in a good way. He doesn't take any shit. And so it was like, you know, he was like, I'm, I'm not coming down unless this is going to be worth it. So, not gonna, you know, so that answers that question. If you talk, sure. I'll tell you what, if you talk Steve into it, we could probably do it. Okay. Okay. Um, I can do that. <laughs> so we're going to wrap this kind of up tonight, mm-hmm. but I want to ask you some questions. I have answers. So, I always so during, during this episode's era. Mm-hmm. So, this is 90s going into the 2000s. Yeah, mm-hmm. 15 years window that we're talking mm-hmm. about. Outside of the big four, mm-hmm. give us a couple of names of bands that you thought were amazing in, in, in Seattle. Hmm. I can't remember any of them. Because at that time... Okay. Uh, Brownouts. Huh? Brownouts. That too, but I mean I I I was browning out. I was burning out. Um mm-hmm. okay. Because it, it was just it started to get discouraging because you do it for so long and you you do it for so long and, and when nothing happens to you, you have to face the reality that whatever that something is is not going to happen for you. And that's when I first started getting the inkling of it was probably 99, 2000, 2001. That's what that period of time that was. But yeah, I, I really honestly, I can't remember at that time. 
in the late 90s going into 2000, it was going to, you know, everything was changing. For me, um, there weren't a lot of local acts to see, for really, for real. And I had was living north of the city and had a family. And, yeah, um, I just needed to change some things because once 2000 hit, I mean, Y2K, baby. Right before Y2K, everything kind of went for me. And that's probably where we should pick up the next time. Right. Let's do that. Um, So stay tuned next week for our next chapter. Tell all your friends. This is like the most interesting thing ever. Exactly. Please share the podcast. Give us reviews. Yes. Yes, All of those things that you're supposed to say in a show that I never did. (laughs) We'll see you next week. Cheers. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.